Well, I don't know about you, but one of the reasons I read the Bible is for the sheer thrill of it. Uh, who could have imagined? Who could have imagined that the persecution that expelled the believers from Jerusalem and scattered them all over the world actually did not destroy the church as was hoped, but instead that persecution actually led to the planting of many churches and it led to the salvation of countless multitudes. That's just thrilling. And if, if this is what Jesus does, how can we not have hope even in our darkest experience? Because, you see, that is what Jesus always does. He works His grace in the darkest of circumstances and moments and experience. That's what He has done and it is doing in this passage. That's what Jesus has done throughout history. And that is what Jesus is doing in our lives today. And so the things that we are going to consider, that is how we need to receive them. This is Jesus bringing his grace and light into our darkness, giving us hope and a future. And the first thing we see in this passage is that Jesus gathers people. Jesus gathers people. Now, initially, as you well know, all of Jesus' disciples were based in Jerusalem, and all of Jesus' disciples were Jewish. And when persecution scattered them in every direction, they left Jerusalem and they settled into various local Jewish communities outside of Judea. And we read here a few examples. Uh, for example, of Phoenicia, which is a modern-day Lebanon, uh, Cyprus, it's an island off of the Mediterranean coast, Antioch of Syria, uh, just to name a few places. And these Jewish people, uh, unsurprisingly, had the same mindset about the Gentiles as Peter did before God changed his outlook. And so no surprise then that these Jewish believers, as they left Jerusalem and as they traveled and they settled into various local Jewish communities, they were speaking the word to no one except Jews. You see, as far as they were concerned, Jesus was the hope of the Jewish people. He was the son of David who has come to restore the fallen kingdom of Israel. He was a Jewish Messiah. But you notice here how God powerfully moved the hearts of some men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyrene is uh, North Africa. And these people who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, Antioch in those days was called the third city of the Roman Empire, a third only after Rome and Alexandria. It was an impressive, thriving, and a diverse city with people, historians tell us, people from Persia, India, and even from China. 
not to mention the Greeks and the Latins. And these believers, these nameless believers, these anonymous believers, God's Spirit moved so powerfully in their hearts that they labored and they brought the message of grace not only to the Jewish people, but to all the Hellenists, all the, the, the foreigners, the Gentiles who were living in Antioch, and their ministry was very fruitful. Fruitful because the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. A great number who believed turned to the Lord. Believed, in other words, faith. They turned to the Lord, in other words, That's repentance, isn't it? They heard the message of God's grace. They they believed, they repented, and they were reconciled uh, to the Lord. But here's a question, though. You remember just from last week's passage how the Jewish believers were so deeply offended when Peter welcomed just one Gentile family into Christian fellowship. And so how will they respond now to this massive influx of the Gentiles into Christian fellowship. And this is what we read. The report of this, a great number who believed turned to the Lord, and the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, we were introduced to Barnabas all the way back in Acts chapter 4, and we read there that Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. You know, when you think about some people, certain traits, certain character really uh, follows them around. You know, Bob is such a funny guy. When you think of Bob, you think of what a, what a funny and humorous guy that is. You know, Steve, he's so handy, he can't fix anything. So when you think of Steve, what stands out to you is that he, he can do anything with his hands. When people thought about Barnabas, the first thing and the last thing that they came to their minds was he, he's an encourager. He's a, someone that you can lean on when you are struggling. He's someone that you can turn to when you need help. And isn't that wonderful? Because these Jewish believers, they heard about this massive conversion of the Gentiles. And instead of finding fault, instead of being offended, they sent to them a man who was best suited to encourage them and help them. And you realize this could not have happened, and this would not have happened apart from Peter's earlier ministry to Cornelius. And if Peter had not patiently provided leadership to the Jewish church that was struggling with this very issue. If Peter was not so humble to face the criticism and respond to it in a gracious, biblical, and a bold way, you know, the Jewish church would not and could not have responded in this way. And it's really something to think about. Sometimes, perhaps, the things that we suffer and face, the hardships that we face, bear fruits that we cannot imagine. And that was the case for Peter's ministry and struggles. And so the Jewish church, they sent Barnabas. And once Barnabas arrived, what he says, 
after observing and after watching everything that has happened, what he says is very telling. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. You see, it was all of grace. The fact that God gathered Gentiles into his church, it was all of grace. The fact that God required of them nothing other than faith and repentance, which actually we have come to learn are God's gift themselves. Faith with which we turn to the Lord, repentance with which we turn away from sin, they are also God's gifts to us. And this is the beauty of the gospel. In every religion of the world, it's the gods demanding their followers to give more and do more. In the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, our God gives us what he demands from us. Our God gives us the very things by which we can come to him. And so it's all of grace that God called the Gentiles, that God gave them the gift of faith and repentance, whether Jew or Gentile. You know, some people work so hard to take credit for salvation. (laughs) Some people say, no, I, I will earn my salvation through my good life. And other people say, it's because I made the right choice and chose God that I am saved. The difference between these two mistakes is not of a kind, but it's a, of a degree. These are errors that exist on the same spectrum. Recently, I had a conversation with a gentleman who said, I think God has forsaken me because I have not lived a good life. And in the course of the conversation, it became clear to me what he was really saying is that I have not earned my way to God. And it it was an interesting conversation in which I told to him, it is all of grace. Jesus is a greater redeemer than our sins. There is more sin, there's more grace in Jesus than there is sin in us. And we receive that grace, all of it as a complete and free gift. And that's what Barnabas is saying here. He he saw the grace of God and he was glad. Salvation is Jesus' gift to us, Jew or Gentile. It is a gift that is undeserved. It is a gift that is free. And it is a gift that is powerful because it reconciles us to God. So Jesus gathers people. Secondly, Jesus instructs people Now notice here how Barnabas exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Now this is the time of the year when we are beginning to think about New Year's resolutions, isn't it? And uh, you know, I'll be the first one to admit that every year uh, with you and like you, I make New Year's resolutions to read the Bible more. Oh boy, how easily are we distracted. Am I alone in saying that this is a New Year's resolution that I make every year, only to break it every year? Uh, we do that, and we realize it's just as that hymn says, we are prone to wander. That's why every believer needs exhortation. 
Every believer needs exhortation because every day a thousand different demands bombard us. Now, some of those demands are important and urgent. You know, we have to feed our families. We have to pay the bills. But sometimes the demands that are placed on us are neither beneficial nor consequential. You know, sometimes what distracts us from following after God is as simple as a new episode of some silly show on Netflix. Whether these demands are important or not, you know, they can easily hijack our love and reorder our priorities. And that's why it is so important for you and me to remember that no one, no one will make one bit of progress as Christ's disciple unless we are intentional, unless we exhort one another and take that exhortation to heart to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. That is to say, no one ever drifts into spiritual maturity. And so you and I, we need to have both as a goal to remain steadfast to the Lord, and we need to make appropriate plans in order that we may be faithful to the Lord, without the goal being part of our lives to be faithful to the Lord, and without coming up with some plans by which we can remain faithful to the Lord, none of us will make one bit of spiritual progress because spiritual maturity just does not happen passively. And wonderfully, Luke here focuses his exhortation on one critical area, uh, an area concerning which we need to be both intentional and we need to have some plans, and that is receiving instruction, receiving instruction. So read here how Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. Now, you understand then, don't you, why Luke calls Barnabas, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Because Barnabas is that kind of a believer who, who had no desire whatsoever to hold on to power or to keep his influence over the believers in Antioch. Because he cared only that the believers in Antioch received the best instruction in the Lord. So you know what he does? He goes and he recruits Saul as their teacher. And one of the fascinating things that will soon happen in the book of Acts is that for a little while, whenever we hear the name Barnabas and Saul mentioned, Barnabas is always mentioned first. Barnabas and Saul Barnabas and Paul. But at some point, it changes. It becomes Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. Because, you see, Barnabas was such a spirit-filled, wise, humble believer that he desired the people of Antioch to receive the best instruction in the Lord, even if it that meant 
lifting up above himself somebody else. And that's what he did. And that really tells us something really important. No one can remain faithful to the Lord without a steadfast and long-term commitment to receiving instruction in the Lord. Let me say that again. No one will remain faithful to the Lord without a steadfast, intentional, and long-term commitment to receive instruction in the Lord. And I think it must be signs of the times, although I suspect this has always been the case, it needs to be said, we need to receive good instruction. We need to receive solid, sound instruction, not just any instruction. It's always so fascinating to me how cult leaders and aberrant teachers have rabid followers who hang on their every word, and they think they are receiving good instruction. But instruction is sound and beneficial not because the teacher is popular with a large following, but because the instruction is faithful to Scripture's content and intent. Instruction is beneficial because it faithfully represents the teachings of the Bible for the end, the goals, the aim toward which God reveals himself. And so there are measures that, we, that can safeguard the integrity of the message. Uh, consider, for example, how Peter and Paul both, uh, we read in the New Testament, uh, how they both openly allow their teachings to be examined and questioned. Neither Peter nor Paul simply demanded by fiat for the church to accept what they were saying unless except that they examine what they were teaching in light of scriptures. You know, whenever a spiritual leader insists that you believe on the authority of their own persons, uh, you know, you've you are in a dangerous place because what Peter, what Paul did, they allowed their teachings to be examined according to the scriptures and with patience, with integrity, they convinced and they won over the approval of the church. And consider also the tone and the aim of instruction. One of the saddest things that happen is that uh, people who are uh, exposed to shallow teachings don't often know that they are shallow. Uh, People who have been taught the wrong things do not often know that they are taught the wrong things. And, And so we need safeguards. And so we need to ask both Does the instruction exalt Christ above all else? Or does it substitute Christ with something else as a matter of first importance? Because if we allow wrong or shallow instructions to captivate our ears, then our hearts 
will be captivated by wrong and shallow things. We need instruction. And unless we are intentional about it, unless we are committed for long term to receive instruction, we will not make one bit of progress. And let me ask you, is this a part of your thinking? Is this part of your life? So Jesus gathers his people, Jesus instructs his people, and thirdly and lastly, Jesus forms his people. And notice how we read here, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in those days, it turns out that followers or members of various groups were called by the name of their leader. And so there were uh, political military uh, associates who were respectively called by the name of their leader. And so to be called Christians meant uh, these are people who follow Christ. And Luke, in the book of, uh, books of Luke and Acts, has made very clear who that Christ is that these people Follow. From the books of Luke and Acts, we learn that Jesus is the Son of God, born of Virgin Mary. That he lived a sinless and righteous life. That he is the Lamb of God, sacrificed for our sins. That he was raised from the dead. And that this Jesus ascended to heaven with the promise to return. And this Jesus, when he was seated at God's right hand, sent his Holy Spirit to empower the believers for holy service. And that this Jesus, he shares the pain of his suffering people. That this Jesus welcomes outsiders as that Ethiopian eunuch came to find out, as Cornelius and Gentiles came to find out. That this Jesus sanctifies the unclean as he forgave not only the Gentile sinners, but Jewish sinners. Paul, who had given his passion and energy to persecuting the church, even he was forgiven. You see, this is the Christ that the believers in Antioch followed, and this is the Christ that you and I follow. That is to say, a Christian receives his identity from Christ. We follow the one who was born of Virgin Mary, lived righteously, died, rose, ascended, promised to come back, who empowers, who forgives and accepts. That's who we are. Followers of that Savior, not some imaginary Jesus that's acceptable to the culture. And we believe these things about Christ so that to be a Christian is not a statement about our politics. It's not a statement about any whatever kind of philosophies we hold, but that we believe that Jesus, the Son of God, born of Virgin Mary, lived, died, rose, ascended, will come again. And that we serve no other master. That is to say, 
Jesus gathers his people by grace. He instructs them by his word. And he forms them to be a people that bear his name. There's some indication that the name Christians was initially meant to be a pejorative put down of the believers. Uh, because that's how the names like that in the ancient culture were used as, as an insult. Um, but it's apparent, it's very clear that these believers in Antioch, they were proud and they were glad to be called by that name. And here Luke gives us a wonderful example of these of how these Christians were formed by Christ. Uh, They responded to a prophecy that there would be a great famine over all the world. And Luke tells us this took place in the days of Claudius. Uh, The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that Judea suffered greatly due to prolonged uh, drought. And when these Antioch Christians received the prophecy, they responded in such a way that shows us that they were formed by Christ, that they bore the name of Christ with sincerity and with faith. Because you see, these Antioch Christians, they understood that humanly speaking, they received the gift of salvation from their brothers in Judea. And they were glad to share Uh, with them in their need and to express their gratitude. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Now giving is always an expression of our gratitude and our faith especially for those who have been given more of uh, material blessings. You need to remember, giving is always a reflection of the size of your faith and of your gratitude. And at the same time, giving is not about how much we give, but with how much gratitude and faith we give in keeping with our abilities. And so to those, much is given, much is required. To those who have received less from the Lord, the Lord does not require you and demand you to give in in ways that you cannot uh, give. What is required is to give with faith, with gratitude, in keeping with your abilities, not because you are expected to give, nor because you are pressured to give, but because our heart has been moved by faith and with love. You know, many people, you know, they're happy to pay lip service to the Lord, but so often their discipleship doesn't cost them anything. As soon as their discipleship costs them acceptance in the world, as soon as discipleship costs them financially, that's where their service to the Lord ends. And so one way that we can see how Jesus is forming us is that you and I learn to ask, what does it mean for you and for me in your situation? 
with your abilities to bear the name of the Lord with gratitude. And can you come to accept this? That when Jesus gathers his people, when he instructs his people, when he forms his people, these things also are Jesus bringing light into our darkness, bringing grace to where sin reigns and abounds, that you and I might increasingly taste the goodness of the Lord. So then, may the Lord form us into a people that bear his name with joy. And perhaps we are living in an age and a place where it's resembling very much the first century Roman world, where to be called a Christian is increasingly an insult and a put-down. Consider it a joy. In Jesus' name, amen. And let's pray together. Dear gracious God and Father, we thank you for instructing us today, and we pray that that we too might uh, show to you our gratitude and our faith in humble submission to your word. And we pray, O Lord Jesus, that you would shape us, that you would transform us to be men and women who bear your holy name with joy and with a sense of privilege. And rescue us, O Lord, from thinking that we know how uh, best to live our lives. Rescue us from thinking that, that we do not need your instruction. And rescue us from living as though that, that our discipleship will not cost us anything. But help us to see the true joy and blessing of being the people that you have called us to be. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.